This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Our democracy is dependent on the free flow of information, but it is as critically dependent on the reliability of that information. But since waging an information war is now easier and cheaper than buying tanks and tridents, we are at a critical stage of protecting our democracy. We could have no better guide to this conversation than Rick Stengel. Among his esteemed positions and experience, two of note for now, are being Time Magazine's editor-in-chief and serving for three years as President Obama's Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs. In his latest book, Information Wars, How We Lost the Global Battle Against Disinformation, and what can we do about it? We have a lively front seat of what is happening. What is the impact and what is government's role? And is democracy safe? Rick, welcome to Just the Right Book. Roxanne, great to be with you. So, Rick, you open your book with this sort of dizzying glossary of acronyms, <laughs> which we'll, we'll, we'll drag them each up. But I'd like to start with like a mini glossary. Mm-hmm. And uh, the two questions are, what is disinformation versus misinformation versus propaganda? Yes. The, the way I define disinformation is it is false information, deliberately false information designed to deceive you. Misinformation can just be a mistake. Misinformation is something that's wrong. When I was editor of Time, we made mistakes. You can mm-hmm. call that misinformation. A lot of the people, a lot of people use the words interchangeably. I, I don't. And propaganda is, is a third category. It is, it is rhetoric or speech designed to support a particular point of view. Um, so it's an argument. I, I know propaganda has a negative interpretation. And it, by the way, and the word comes from propagare, the propagation of the faith of the, about the church in the 15th and 16th century. I, I look at propaganda as something that can be good or bad. Mm. If you're creating propaganda in support of Nazism, it's bad. If you're creating propaganda in support of uh, human rights, it's good. Well, because I'm not sure if this is a reliable way of thinking of propaganda, but uh, Jason Stanley had written a book a number of years ago. He's a Yale uh, guy about propaganda. And one of the things he talks about is the notion that a purpose of propaganda could be for you to lose faith in anything else that you hear other than the head of that state. So that you, Putin, would be an example of, okay, I'm the reliable source of information. Do you think that's a logical way to think about propaganda or not? Well, again, propaganda coming from Putin would be a negative or bad thing. Um, um, I do, and I've been... Uh, criticized for this, saying that countries all use propaganda and they often use it in their own favor or use it on their own people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for example, talking about the American narrative to Americans is, is you could say, is a is a is a form of propaganda. I would say it's it's good propaganda. The the way autocrats and authoritarians use it um, 
as per your point, is is to deny other points of view. Mm-hmm. Is to say the way we see it is the only way to see it. And they're against critical thinking. They're against criticism. They're uh, against any kind of uh, protest to, to what they say. So, so that's a particularly nefarious kind of propaganda. And by the way, that's the kind of propaganda that's on the rise around the world. Mm. And, and we'll come to that. But while we're with the mini glossary, explain to us what does the job of the Undersecretary of State of Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs do? <laughs> That's a very long title. You had a beautiful office, I know. I did. I had a, <laughs> a gorgeous office. I wish we were there now. We could talk there. Um, and of course, nobody's in the job now, so it's empty. Um, the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, there are actually six undersecretaries at the State Department. There's the secretary, there's two deputy secretaries, there's six undersecretaries, about 23 or 24 assistant secretaries. And the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, public affairs is the simpler part. That's the spokespeople at the embassy. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's the spokespeople at all the embassies around the world. That's the spokesperson at the State Department. Um, That's the kind of communications part of the State Department. Public diplomacy is a little harder to find. Public diplomacy is, is actually speaking of propaganda, uh, was once defined as telling America's story. It's about the programs that we do abroad that talk about the American experience, that talk about American policy. There are educational exchange programs like the Fulbright program, which is a State Department program, uh, is under uh, the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy. So that's, a, again, the, the best definition of that, I've always thought, was the Joseph Nye phrase soft power. It's really Mm -hmm. about America's soft power and projecting it around the world. So speaking of soft power, uh, or not so soft power, one of your, um, the two incidents that happened early in your tenure at the State Department were one, um, Russia's invasion of Crimea, and what I think you call Putin's pulp fiction. (laughs) Uh, And then ISIS taking to video to uh, sell their brand, so to speak, by publicly beheading um, prisoners, yes, uh, journalists in particular. So tell us what you learned very quickly with those two huge events. So ju- I had only been in the office a few weeks, and those two events happened. Putin's uh, illegal annexation of Crimea, invasion of Ukraine, Crimea being the southernmost port uh, part of uh of Ukraine, with a port, by the way. Uh, and then the first of the big ISIS beheadings of James Foley, the American journalist. And those two things happened within a couple of weeks of each other, and they ended up becoming symbolic of my dual focus while I was at the State Department, countering Russian disinformation and countering ISIS propaganda. I, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, because what we saw around Putin's annexation of Crimea was this whole edifice of disinformation that I'd never really seen before. And I'm not just talking about uh, Russia Today or uh, TASS or the other uh, Russian news outlets that we know. And by the way, Russia Today was growing along with uh, Sputnik, which is their radio version of it. But it was also the rise of what we learned about from the Mueller report, although we knew about it before, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, a troll farm where where young Russians, you know, three, four, five hundred would go in every day to create content, to, to masquerade as Americans on Twitter, to uh, to create false 
websites to create create false pages on Facebook. But we saw that happening in 2014 around the annexation of Crimea, where they were supporting Putin's narrative and Putin's lies when he said for weeks after the annexation, there are no Russian soldiers in Crimea. I mean, outright lies. Outright, bald-faced lie. You can't have a more direct lie than that. And and about something that is enormously consequential. And and again, one of the things that I saw is that, you know, that it's what does the media do in the face of that? I mean, they have to report that Putin says this, and uh, it gets more purchase because you were writing, you know, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, said there were no Russian troops in, in, uh, in Crimea. And then you'll have, well, the American State Department insists that those uh, are Russian soldiers. So, so it really was eye-opening for me. And I hadn't really seen all of this other artifice of disinformation that they did. And that the Internet Research Agency was then new. It had only been in existence. It was created by a crony of uh, Mr. Pagos and a crony of uh, Putin's in uh, the end of 2013. And their first trial run was around the annexation of Crimea. So one of the things that I was stunned about uh, when I read about uh, the... By the way, you should all see these green bookmarks that Roxanne has in my book. I mean, there are about 35 or 40 of them. It's really impressive. So I want to, so you talked about this, you know, they're on that street in St. Petersburg, but the volume of this was shocking to me. So in December 2018, I'm reading from Rick's book. The Senate Intelligence Committee released a white paper on Russian disinformation, reported that during the presidential campaign, the Internet Research Agency had created more than 10 million tweets, of which 6 million were original, across almost 4,000 accounts. They also produced 1,100 YouTube videos across 17 channels, 116,000 Instagram posts across 133 accounts, 61,000 Facebook posts, and 187 million on Instagram, 77 million engagements on Facebook. How big is this building and how many people are in it? Well, you know, the, it's a little bit deceiving. And um, because the reason that disinformation that they created was effective is because Americans participated in it. So we're talking about the number of times something was received or liked on Instagram. The The actual volume of what they created is is – not that great. I mean, I, I think part of it is we don't have a sense of proportion. I mean, the internet is just, it's just so vast. So, I mean, Katy Perry gets retweeted 20 million times a day. Mm-hmm. That's more than all the tweets that were done by yeah. the Internet Research Agency over a year and a half. So, um, the, the, the scale of all of this is crazy. But w- the reason they were effective is they had purchased that, you know, the whole point about disinformation is it takes two and people are receptive to it. So, so the stuff that they created, I'm not, we're now leaping to the 2016 election. The, for example, uh, uh, a site called Blacktivist on, uh, on Facebook, which was a supposed, allegedly a site created by black American activists, actually created in St. Petersburg, had 150,000 followers. Those are all Americans, you know, mm. the lion's share of whom I'm sure were African Americans. Uh, they, you know, created that site that everyone's heard about, Tennessee GOP, which was meant to be a Republican site in in Tennessee. Also had, you know, over a hundred thousand followers. So, so again, you know, the ratio is they they create 
X, but we amplify it by, you know, 100 times X. So that's why the numbers seem big. Okay. And we're going to come back to the Trump use of disinformation or the error of Trump and disinformation. And we're also going to come back to who knew what when about Russian (laughs) interference. Uh, But what I want to stick to for a second, so as you learn this very quickly, I mean, you're weeks on the job, you had never been in government. How did you even begin to address how and whether government could manage this? So I I did, you know, I did go into government after having been in the media most of my life. And uh, it was new to me. I mean, it is fascinating. I mean, you mentioned all the acronyms and it, it's like an anthropological experience. I mean, you're going to another country and, and the bureaucracy is vast and it's things move very slowly. And, and so for someone coming from the private sector, it can be very painful um, entering that government bureaucracy. And by the way, Sometimes it's a good thing to slow mm-hmm. things down, like now, for example. Uh, but when you are trying to do something that you think is important and you think is is, is for the benefit of the American people, it, it can slow you down. So the other thing I found is that as a person who came from media and, and, and lived among people that create content like we're doing today – People in government are not very good at that. I mean, you don't mm. go into government if you want to create content. And so they're... Um, You're sure about that? They're, yes, I, I really determined that. And and they're also reluctant to do it. And they're reluctant to sometimes put their heads up. And all of that is understandable. So, you know, again, getting too far ahead of ourselves, when I started to realize, well, it took me a while to realize this, that maybe government isn't the answer in mm. rebutting false content or rebutting disinformation or creating content that challenges the content that you don't like. So, so I, it took me a while to, to, to figure that out. And, you know, that's one of the problems with going into government is that you just kind of begin to figure it out right when you're leaving. Yeah. And, and so, Rick, one of the questions it makes me think about, which has sort of nothing to do with anything, is who changed more, your little planet of the State Department or you? Did you become more bureaucratic yourself? You know, it's funny. I um, uh, One of the book reviews uh, uh, of the book that I read, which I thought was smart, he, he, the, the writer made the observation, you know, in the beginning of the book, the author makes fun of all the acronyms and the bureaucracy and all of that. And by the end of the book, he's using all the acronyms and becomes a master of the bureaucracy. And and I, I suppose that's true. I mean, I never quite became a master of the bureaucracy, but I did understand it better. And and one of the things that made me realize is that to change government, you don't bring in an outsider to do it, mm. even though everyone seems to think that's right, bring in a businessman. But um The people who will change government are the people who understand government, who know it needs to be changed and know how to change it. And there are those people in government and there are those people who have served in government. And, and, and those are the folks who I really think could, uh, could really streamline things, make government more nimble and more effective, which is what we want. You know, you bring up a really interesting point that I think was illuminated with the testimonies of government employees during the impeachment, that the big dogs, Mm -hmm. you know, Mike Mulvaney and John Bolton and those guys, Mike Pompeo, they weren't in the room. And instead, we were counting on the men and women who were knocking it out day to day. 
and have a fierce commitment to the integrity of, of, of what they do. And I think your book reminds us of that. Those testimonies, I think, were, I, I, I think that, you know, talk about public affairs. I have to believe that those testimonies and the integrity of those um, folks was very impressive to a lot of people who maybe have become cynical about government because of the political leaders of government. Yes, no, you you, you make an astute point, and and because the the I hate the meme about the Washington swamp. What you saw in the testimony of people like Fiona Hill and Ambassador Strickland, and these are career civil servants, Democrat or Republican. And they are phenomenally knowledgeable about their their uh, their institutions and their subjects. They're dedicated to working for the American people. They don't make a lot of money. They're they're public servants. And in my experience, and I covered Washington for a long time before I mm-hmm. went to Washington. It's like, you know, that's ninety seven percent of Washington, and those people are really upstanding folks that um, every American should be proud that their tax dollars are going to help pay for for uh, for those folks working in government because they're trying to give back. They're, they're super smart. Um, they don't want to make a mistake. They want to do the right thing. Uh, it's just the political leaders that, you know, for the most part, the 535 members of Congress and the you know, and the and the other folks who run for office that give Washington a bad name. And those folks are, you know, they're problematic. And, and, mm-hmm. um, and I think people shouldn't confuse them with the civil servants and public servants and, and foreign service officers at the State Department who are, who are really, uh, you know, upstanding and true blue. You know, what, what the entrepreneur in me thinks about is, does the bureaucracy get in the way of its own talent solving its own problems? You know, it's a good question. I mean, uh, again, I, I, after just praising to the skies folks who work in government, I would also say they're not terribly entrepreneurial. And they're again, not going to be risk takers. Yeah, they're not. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, again, you're not going to go into government. So um, so one of the things I try to do is to try to make people a little more entrepreneurial and take have them take a little bit more of a risk. But again, you know, sometimes it's a good thing when people in government don't take risks like now. Yeah. Um, so we have a lot to get to, and I want to make sure uh, that we don't move up to uh, current times. So for purposes of people um, who were listening, there is a lot in the book that I think helps us understand what the State Department and we are up against in trying to combat what Russia is capable of, what ISIS was capable of. And what you say, what you talked about is that we become their assistants, Right, because we're listening, the media is playing it, we're listening to it, it, we're giving it currency. But I want to move up to um, now. So you were at the State Department when Trump announced his um, candidacy, and you refer to what was known already about Russian interference, and not necessarily pro-Trump or pro-Clinton, but they were immediately in the game. So what what was known and what was done with the information? Well, 
It's not quite true that they were immediately in the game. So I actually, when I was working on the book, went back to kind of monitor Russian media when he announced and the ones that you could monitor like like Russia Today and Sputnik. And again, they had been uh, energized about supporting the Russian narrative in Ukraine and, and in what people call the Russian periphery. They started covering the uh, American campaign. And I would say for, for the first six weeks, maybe even two months after Donald Trump announced, the you know Russian media, Sputnik, even the you know the troll farm, the Internet Research Agency, were not pro-Trump. They were always resolutely anti-Hillary because Putin was fixated that Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, started these uh, uh, protests against him in 2011 that he thought would upend his presidency. He loathes with a passion uh, Hillary Clinton and ascribes all kinds of uh, mischief to her. So they were. Again, very resolutely anti-Hillary. They weren't yet pro-Trump. In the beginning, they made fun of Trump, like like pretty much everybody else did. But as Trump started getting more attention in the primaries and winning the primaries, as he started saying nice things about Putin and nice things about Russia, I don't know if it came down from the Kremlin or whatever, but they, they suddenly after six or eight weeks, started started becoming much, much more pro-Trump. Now, remember, they'd also been pro-Brexit. They're pro any of these independent movements that, mm. that they think will help unravel democracy. I mean, they're, again, to pull back for a second, the goal of all Russian disinformation and messaging is to undermine democracies, to undermine people's free will, to undermine the West, to undermine NATO. So chaos. Chaos. And when they saw that Trump, yes, including the, the negative things Trump said about NATO, and NATO was, uh, you know, out of date and 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 should be, you know, relic part of relics of history, then they started getting behind Trump because they saw Trump was the guy who was undermining American democracy mm -hmm. and parroting basically the stuff they'd been saying. So he, Russia, saw Trump as a convenient partner what the Mueller report found that he had not collaborated with them except inadvertently. So the way I look at it is, um, and you didn't say that C word collusion. I mean, collusion is not a legal term and you can kind of define it the way you want. So for example, you could say the Russians offered help, gave Trump help, Trump welcomed it, isn't that collusion? Yeah, that's one definition of collusion. What Mueller find, found was that there was not a conspiracy, which is a legal term, which is basically the— He huddled with them. Yes, a, a witting uh, uh, collaboration where they knew what they were doing and they conspired to do it together. I, I think a lot of it was unwitting that they did that. I mean, I mean— in the Mueller report, in the first Mueller indictment, they tell the story of how from the St. Petersburg, uh, some members of the of that Russian troll firm created it, an anti-Hillary, pro-Trump rally in Palm Beach, where they hired a flatbed truck, uh, erected a kind of a prison cell on the back of the flatbed truck, and hired an actress to portray Hillary Clinton. That's in the Mueller indictment. That so I don't I mean. What, there wasn't a conspiracy in the sense that the Trump people who were dealing with these people from Russia didn't know they were from Russia, didn't know they, they were Russian, et cetera. But the Russians 
put on dozens and dozens of demonstrations, anti-Hillary, pro-Trump demonstrations all around the U.S. So, Rick, take me back to the time that the State Department and the Obama administration was aware of Russia actively providing misinformation to impact the election. What was decided to do with that information and why? So, you know, I know, I, I mean, I know, of course, what I knew. And I, there's no classified information in my book. You're not allowed to, you know, reveal classified information. But, but by the same token, even though I was read into some things that, that were classified, this area, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what Barack Obama knew or what the attorney general knew. Um, and I think it's pretty apparent, for example, that even Facebook didn't know the extent of it or certainly mm-hmm. Twitter didn't know the extent of it. Because remember, the trolls take other people's identity. One of the why social media is so effective is you don't have to tell your real name. You don't have to give your address. You don't have to put your social security number down. You can say, you know, you're uh, uh, a 13-year-old boy in Kalamazoo uh, or a 96-year-old woman in, in Arkansas. And maybe neither of you can spell, but and, that and doesn't neither, matter. And people don't – that doesn't seem to bother people. So, <laughs> so um, – I it was hidden in plain sight. The uh, the tech companies didn't know the extent of it. Uh, I would argue that our intelligence service didn't know the extent of it either, or or uh, or even the White House or the State Department. But we knew there was stuff going on. I mean, there were real stories, open source stories, being written about the Internet Research Agency in 2015 and 2016. Mm-hmm. Really good ones. You know, more knowledgeable oftentimes than than what the intelligence service had because it was local people, you know, who were, who were trying to cover what the Russians were doing. So, so I don't know that anybody knew quite the extent of the problem. I mean, I'll go out on a limb here, and and I mean, the argument is, did should the administration have said, hey, it, let's this is a red alert. There's a foreign hostile power that is trying to influence our election, not meddle with our. Uh, election attack and influence our election. People, Americans, every American has to be aware. Every American has to be vigilant. I, I actually think that would have been a good thing. Mm-hmm. And of course, part of the problem was, and I tell the story in the, in the book. I think I was the last person in the administration to go to Russia before the election. Most people thought that Secretary Clinton was going to win. And what you also saw in the last few weeks of the election was Trump and the Russians starting to talk about a rigged election. And, oh, they're not going to let me win. And, um, you know, we're going to start protests. And so what people didn't want to do was to give feed that Trump ammunition and the Russians ammunition for what they would do after Secretary Clinton won to protest the election and say it was an illegitimate election. So... I mean, in retrospect, uh, that probably wasn't the right thing to do. But at the time, people thought, "Well, that will that will help the next administration and 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 help the transfer of power and all of that." So, so yeah, no, you know that the the outcome that happened wasn't really what anyone expected. Mm, and hindsight, of course, is always brilliant. Yes, yes. Uh, so, Rick, I'd be um, remiss if I didn't. Um, take advantage while you were here to um, have you talk about having met Putin personally 
and interacted with uh, Barack Obama. So I, I know you met, I think you met Putin in 2007. Yes. When you were time. Yes. Um, so what was your impression? Well, it's funny. I talked to a bunch of people about Putin before I went to see him, one of whom was Henry Kissinger, who'd spent a lot of time with Putin, maybe more than anybody else in the West. And Kissinger said, you will be surprised at what little effort he makes to charm you. Mm. And um, I didn't quite think about it at the time, but as soon as I met him, I got that because he emanates a kind of frigid air. It's like opening the freezer and you feel cold air blowing off him. And you feel like the way we're looking at each other and you're, you know, you're trying to be a little bit ingratiating and smiling, none of that. It's like looking at this microphone. I mean, there's... I, there's no sense that there's a human being in there. I mean, when George Bush said he, you know, saw Vladimir Putin's soul, uh, I really don't know what he was talking about because... Um, the, was he scary? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's hostile. Uh, he's unfriendly. Um, now, again, I mean, he's friendly to Donald Trump. But, but um, and in fact, when we began the interview... He kept us waiting for six hours. And when we began the interview, one of the first questions got his age wrong. And from our side, from a time questioner. And from the other end of the table, he started banging the table like this and saying, no, I wasn't born in 1948. I was born in 1949. And there's a world of difference. I mean, he has a temper. And, you know, you think of this guy, this kind of cool actor on the world stage. He's not cool. He's hot tempered. And... It was uh, it was it was uh, 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 worrisome and disturbing and and he even though he didn't end end the interview then he he when we went to dinner afterwards he then did abruptly end the interview and walk out of the room. Mm. Well, you know, totally another subject and maybe um, another book. But one of the things that fascinates me is how people like Erdogan or Putin um, hold on to their power. That, you know, that is a sort of stunning set of circumstances that I think for the first time in the United States, when we've watched Trump take hold of the Republican Party, that you begin to think in a very different way about what is it that makes a leader able to hold on to their power, regardless of the harm to people in their country. Yes, and I mean, that's been a phenomenon throughout history. And it's, I mean, that's not new. Yeah, it's not new. And again, I mean, knock on wood, I mean, I think one of the uh, great things about our system is that, you know, we do have elections every four years. We do have mechanisms for turning people out of power, including impeachment. And, and it, our system was constructed to not allow a autocrat or a tyrant to to stay in office i mean we there are term limits for the for the president um you know it, russia just doesn't have the same institutions it doesn't have the same legal system mm. um there has always been a kind of reverence for the strong man there and that and putin plays into that um so look i mean i i'm i'm grateful for our system i think our system is working uh and and will work you know in the case of Russia, Putin has captured the entire system himself, mm. I mean, and manipulated it to keep himself in power. But I I think 
I, and I'm sure there are many others, have been taken aback by what we thought were legal constraints on a presidency were in on a president were in fact custom. Yes. In fact, that's a good point. And one of the things I talk a little bit about this in the book, and I, I wish I'd actually talked more about it, is that there under Trump we've realized there are so many norms in government that are not in the legal system. Yeah. So I mean, for example, it's been a norm, it's been throughout our history that a, a, a president can't uh, 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 co-opt an investigation that's being done by the Justice Department, and he has to stay off. Well, it oh. turns out there are no laws about that. That's a norm. And and Trump doesn't know the norm. He doesn't observe it. And you know, one of the things I do think if we're going to really fix things is that we have to look at those norms or customs and say, you know what, this needs to be bolstered by actual legislation, by yep. statute, by law. You know, we just can't depend on on a norm on people observing a norm. And by the way, that's been one of the great things about our system is that that people on both sides of the aisle have have observed these norms. But now you need to put it in legislation. So when one of the things that I think about when I think about information wars that feels new. And I thought about this a lot as I was reading the book. So we are used to the notion of Russian propaganda or, you know, what we'll now call disinformation going back. I mean, I remember this as a grammar school kid in the 50s where they would talk about Russian propaganda of things. But I don't remember a time where we worried about disinformation from our own leaders. And that's the thing that I think gives me as a citizen pause. Yes. So when when we start to talk about what we can do, either within government or society, talk with us a little bit about what you think can be done to um, manage disinformation that's intra the United States, not against the United States. Yes. Yeah, so I do call Trump the disinformationist in chief in the book. And, 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 and putting him aside for a second, the 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 thing that I think people don't realize, and we're seeing more and more of it every day, is that the disinformation problem in the U.S. is a domestic problem. The creation and dissemination of disinformation is vastly greater, but done by Americans to Americans than any foreign power or the Russians to us. I mean, it that's just, a big point. Yeah, it is a big point, and I think people don't quite realize that. And even the stuff that the Russians did, it was echoed. By Americans, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't all the Russians doing that. There were only a, you know a few. We thousand were their aide de camps. We were, and so and what you see now, you know, from Trump on down. I mean, there was the congressman who tweeted a picture yesterday or the day before, which which was a photoshopped image that he thought showed Barack Obama and General Soleimani, and say the world is better off with both of these people gone. I mean, you know, that's a hundred percent domestic disinformation. Yeah, and and. We see a lot more of that, and in part because there are a lot more Americans, and people have access to these platforms, and and there's a lot of people who believe conspiracy theories and false narratives and whatever you want to call them. So do you think it's government's job, or do you believe that legislation around social media platforms is going to have to begin to address the fact 
that they are not merely aggregators and a opportunity for, you know, kumbaya of sharing information, but in fact, journalistic responsible for the dissemination of information and need to be held accountable to some standard. Yes. So I don't think it's government's job to take information or disinformation off platforms. That's the first, that's a violation of the First Amendment. But I think government can regulate these platform companies. And I talk in the book about the kind of uh, seminal legislation that helped create social media, the Communications Decency Act of, of 1996, long before Facebook, by the way. And basically what that act did was they looked at, and it was, and it was, it, they were wise at the time. They looked at the rise of this, of this new kind of media. And it was media that was fueled not by professional content, by journalists like you and me, but by regular people, by your aunt Betty, by, you know, your mm-hmm. grandfather and who, who are putting things up. And so they wanted to, the idea of the legislation was, we don't want you, the media companies, to censor this content because what this is about is giving people access to all of this stuff. So so what Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act did was it gave the platform companies blanket immunity from any liability for anything that they, quote, publish because they're not publishers. Now, you know, it was not unwise at the time, but it's silly now. These are the biggest publishers in the history of the world. It's not, you know, they... It's not that they're creating the content themselves with professional journalists, but this is what publishing is in the 21st century. So so what I say that Congress can do is that they can amend the Communications Decency Act, particularly Section 230, to give them more liability for what they publish. So if you look at – you could go on right now and read – Facebook's community standards. And and you'd read it and go, wow, that's great. <laughs> not, you know, hate speech is not allowed. Uh, anti-Semitism is not allowed. Anything that insults anybody with race, gender, religion, sexuality is not allowed. It's like, it sounds heavenly. Well, and it is. It's all not allowed. But because they don't have any liability for when they see hate speech on their platform, they don't take it off. And so, and they're making money by this stuff getting shared. And yes, it's a it's about virality, and this nasty stuff becomes viral, and and there's advertising next to it. I mean, that is their business. So, so I think if if they had more liability, if they were more regulated, if they could penalize people for this kind of content and throw them off and take it off. And remember, the First Amendment doesn't apply to Facebook or private companies. It applies to government. So they're well within their power of, of taking this off. And one reason they don't is because they have immunity from prosecution, from being sued. What's their incentive? Yes, they don't. None. They, they don't. I mean, they do have some incentive and they are doing a lot. I want to give them credit. And they did do a lot. I talk about in the you book. You can against, give them credit. Against, against <laughs> the anti-ISIS stuff. Um they, they, they do do a lot. And, the, and part of their incentive is nobody likes it, really. I mean, the vast majority of their users don't want to have conspiracy theories and this kind of stuff on the platform. It, I remember a guy from, from Google saying it's, you know, uh, it, it pollutes our system and we don't want our system to be polluted. And I, I, mm-hmm. I think that's true of all of them. But it's, you know, it's expensive and it's labor intensive. But it's got to happen. And I think it, it's somewhat happening, and again, it's happening in in 
in Europe, for example, the uh, uh, European legislation, EU GDR, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is much stricter than what they have in the U.S. And, that, and that's stricter about what the platform companies can do. So I think we're moving in that direction. Are we moving in that direction fast enough? No. Will there be some furniture broken along the way and pe people get offended and some things that are, that are fine taken off and some things that are not are not? But, but um, I do think we're moving in that direction, not fast enough for the 2020 election, but, but I think uh, we'll get there. And are you worried about the 2020 election? Sure, I am. Um, <laughs> there's, I mean, and there are new things. I mean, uh, so, you know, everybody's read about deep fakes and, and, uh, and deep fakes are something new. And uh, we haven't really seen them used uh, in, 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 with any kind of uh, uh, effect yet, but it's getting better all the time. And, and I'm sure there will be deep fakes in the 2020 election at, you know, in House districts and Senate elections. And, and so, for example, one of the things I, I recommend is that, that, that in, in terms of their terms of service, that platform companies have to remove a deep fake. There's just, there's nothing good about a deep fake. Didn't one of them come out and said that they would? Yes. Facebook just said the other day that they will, they will take down deep fakes. What they did say, though, is, and it's interesting, they said that they, they, they wouldn't take down what is commonly known as cheap fakes, for example. So that is the Nancy Pelosi video, where, mm -hmm. which was a regular video that was slowed down to make her seem like her speech was slurred or whatever. And, and again, it's a tricky question. I want to give them credit for thinking about it. I mean, in the sense that there's a difference between disinformation and satire. You know, there's a difference between disinformation and irony. And there's a difference between disinformation and political advertising. I mean, political speech is much more protected speech. And... And for, you know, it's, it's not an illegitimate argument for Facebook or others to say, well, political speech needs to be judged by the voters, not by us platform companies or politicians or whatever. And even if it contains falsehoods, that is up to voters to decide. I mean, it's a tough question. I would argue that the, the standard should be, uh, should be demonstrably false content, whether it's in an ad or not should be taken down. Yeah. And that would get around that uh, uh, privileged political speech, I think. You know, the other thing that you uh, touch on in the book, which uh, we won't have time to um, uh, discuss, is you make the uh, statement in the book that you think that despite this huge amount of interference by Russia uh, during the 2016 election— there probably are media companies who gave uh, Donald Trump a, a shocking amount of free airtime for their own uh, benefit. I, I remember the quote from Leslie Moonves that Donald Trump might be bad for America, but he was great for CBS. Mm -hmm. So do you see where media companies will, our standard media companies will in fact operate in a different way during did they learn something during the 2016 election? Yeah. So one of the things that they learned, and I say this in the book, I mean, that the, the CNN's regular televising of Trump rallies live was worth billions, billions. and billions of dollars to him in, in free media. I mean, you could not have bought enough advertising to get an audience like that. So I said in the book, you know, CNN did more to elect Donald Trump than Russia Today did. And... Um, and that's certainly true. 
so one of the things that we've seen is, and, and that one of the, company, the companies I work for, NBC, MSNBC, no longer televises Trump rallies live. Even they Fox doesn't, do they? Well, I think they still do, and CNN doesn't. But for example, even at MSNBC, they won't, uh, those impromptu kind of press conferences that he gives when he's getting on the helicopter, they, they won't televise live. They'll They'll look at it, they'll edit it, they'll see what's a news value. So I think people are learning the lesson, but um, but I think he'll get a tremendous amount of, of free media uh, during the election. That's what his campaign was based on. I mean, remember, he didn't— He's a master at this. He is a master of it, um, I suppose, um, and we're sometimes suckers for it, Um you know, it's like, to me, it's like people who gather around to watch like a car crash. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm not interested in watching a car crash, but... But um, but we're doing it. But we're doing it, yeah. So, Rick, there's so many topics we're not getting to, and we're coming up on an hour, so... It's been so much fun. Uh, it, <laughs> this has been uh, great. I really appreciate your time. Um, so, maybe I'll try these two questions, and they're quite different. Um, we're uh, recording this um, conversation on January 8th, so we are in the midst of uh, the impact of killing Soleimani, uh, Trump making uh, a statement, and the real possibility, the closest possibility we've had in decades of a war in the Middle East again. What Whoever's in your job in the Trump administration in public diplomacy, what are they now thinking? What should they be thinking about? What would you have been thinking about in this circumstance as the way of using or not using rhetoric to inflame or settle things down? Well, first of all, Roxanne, there is nobody in my job. They they had an appointee who was confirmed and then Trump fired him, and they haven't put anyone in the job since. And so that's scary like, all by itself. Yeah. So just like so many empty jobs at the State Department, and I'm not saying every single job needs to be filled, but but this historic number of vacancies at the State Department, at Homeland Security, um, at the NSA, um, and in, in the intelligence community. So there aren't even people to do that job. Again, my I, I do think Trump is a gigantic challenge to American public diplomacy and will be for years and years to come. One of the things I how I describe him in the book, and it's a kind of an old phrase now, but but for so many people around the world, and when we looked at him, he was the quintessential ugly American. Mm. You know, he uh, people who looked at Americans as gauche, as money-grubbing, as uh, ill-mannered, as boorish, as full of themselves. I mean, you That's use the Donald term. Trump. You use the term. He's a poor man's version of a rich guy. <laughs> yes, and of course, there are a lot of poor people around the world who, you know, who look at Donald Trump as a as a model. But 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 in terms of the what I think we tried to convey at uh, with the within the Obama administration that that America was there to help people. That we 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 our role. We looked at our role with a certain amount of humility. We wanted to collaborate with people rather than dominate people. I mean, he's back to that old sort of post-war, my way or the highway. Yeah, like J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. So it's it's I think it's a big challenge, and um, and particularly the way he's handled this Iran thing, which was which is a to me a a, a blunder of his own making. 
abetted by this boisterous, bellicose talk, uh, which which is familiar to people from you know the way America used to sound. And um, I just think it's it's really sad, and uh, it will take a long time to unravel. Are you cynical enough to think he did this to distract um, during the impeachment trial? I'm realistic enough to think that he did this to distract from the impeachment trial. Okay. Well, we'll take that, and this will be your last question, sir. Um, what did you hope uh, the conversation would be as a result of your book? It's That's a very good question, Roxanne. Um, I I wanted people to be aware of certain things, that government wasn't the answer when it comes to fighting disinformation. I wanted people to realize how widespread disinformation was, how uh, sinister it was, how they were aiding and abetting itself. It takes two people. I mean, it's not just a supply problem. I mean, yeah, it's not just a supply problem. It's a demand problem. We welcome it, right? I mean, we wouldn't have disinformation if people rejected it. And we wouldn't have it if people had even fundamental kind of media literacy. I mean, that's what I say in the book. We don't have a fake news problem. We have a media literacy problem. Mm -hmm. People just are not equipped and we haven't taught them and they don't know how to really trust the information that they're getting and make distinctions between information that is false versus information that's true, how to check it, how to look at the origin of information. And so I actually think one of the things that needs to be done, and, and you know, obviously it won't be done in times for the 2020 election, is to have massive media literacy education beginning in elementary school, media mm-hmm. and digital literacy, and civics, of course, which we don't teach anymore. Yeah, I, I read about some schools beginning to introduce it. That's um, great. So we have been talking with uh, Rick Stangle. Uh, hopefully it's okay. I've been calling you Rick, and your name is Richard. Good. Um, the author of a book called Information Wars, How We Lost the Global Battle Against Disinformation, and what we can do about it. And if you read Rick's book, you, you know, we didn't hardly um, get to everything. You learn about the role of government. You, the beginning of the book is worth the price of admission just to understand. (laughs) It ought to be a primer for like State Department employees to understand what these meetings are like and all of that. Um, Understanding what Russia's doing, been doing, uh, disinformation within the United States. And it's, it, it's a it's a lively read, um, so I would encourage those of you who haven't read it um, after you hear this conversation to read it. And Rick, I really want to thank you for spending time with us at Just the Right Book. Thank you, Roxanne. You are the perfect reader. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>